Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. The Podcast Playground. I'm Buzz Knight, the host of Taking a Walk, Music History on Foot. You can find us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or the Podcast Playground or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to takingawalk.com for all episodes and all transcripts. Today, our guest is Stephanie Clifford, an award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author. Her first book, Everybody Rise, was a New York Times bestseller. Her new novel is called The Farewell Tour, the story of fictional country music singer Lillian Waters. Let's take a walk with Stephanie Clifford next. Well, Stephanie Clifford, it's so nice to be taking a walk with you in person. I know. What a, what a post-COVID treat, right? This is terrific. It's a beautiful day. So set the scene where we are. No. We are in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, which is... I think the crown jewel of Brooklyn, Olmstead design, like Central Park. Um, we're passing, if you hear the shouts of children, there seems to be some sort of girls' school at play on our right. Um, and this is near my house. I get to come here, I try to come here every day for a little piece and certainly to walk my two big dogs, um, play with the kids, all that. So I love it. And, and we're in spring migration, so if we see any cool birds, We'll be stopping to talk about them. That's perfect. Yeah, it's great. Well, I have to thank you, first of all, because one of the great joys is when someone listens to an episode of Taking a Walk and then reaches out like you did to uh, offer up an opportunity to uh, talk about your book, The Farewell Tour. So thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm grateful, too. I think, And I love the idea of an actual 
walk while you talk to people. I think it just brings in a different kind of more relaxed element and mindfulness as you as you know. So I, I think the whole thing is cool. And a lot of people listen and they go, well, wait a minute. It sounds like you're actually like huffing and puffing a little <laughs> bit. And uh, I said, well, it's because we're walking. I know. Now we're echoing because we're going through a tunnel. Echo, echo. echo, echo. <laughs> How many times did you do that when you <laughs> so were young? So many times. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. And they're actually, for music-wise, um, this gets great acoustics. So they're often great violin or cello players just sitting there in the tunnel, which is a neat, neat thing, too. So before we talk about your book, let's talk about your journey, how you uh, became an investigative reporter, and uh, where did all this start? Sure. I was always super nosy, like Harriet the Spy was my, was my uh, hero as a kid, um, and I was always making notes in journals about like various plots that I thought were happening within my house or within the neighborhood. Nothing ever was. It wasn't very interesting. But... Uh, when I found out that you could be a reporter and that that was a real job, I was like, well, that, I think, is what I want to do. And so I did the high school paper, I did the college paper, and I started at a magazine right out of college uh, as a fact checker. Eventually, I got to the New York Times, where I covered business, and then I covered courts. Um, and at the Times, I wrote my first book, Everybody Rise, and then... I had to sort of make the choice of, do I stay at the Times and not have time to write a second book, or do I leave, try to combine journalism and novel writing in some fashion, which is what I decided to do. So I now write about courts and crime for Elle, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, several places, and then combine that with novel writing. So where did music become part of your life? It's always been. So I... um, I play, I've played piano since I was, I think, four. Um, I fell in love with country music in particular, which the Farewell Tour is set in that world, when I was in high school. And I, I spent a summer, I had a summer job in Arkansas um, working uh, trail maintenance. And the only, we, only, we were way up in the Wachita Mountains. We only got one station, and it was country. And that sort of <laughs> forced immersion into it made me realize that everything I'd heard about country, because I hadn't really listened to it before that, was wrong. And in fact, it was this incredibly rich, beautiful um, genre that I hadn't really given much credit or time to. And so I came back from Seattle. I came back to Seattle. This was the height of the grunge era. And I was, like, buying Tammy Wynette CDs. (laughs) And nobody knew. Everybody's like, no, we're going to, like, an underground Nirvana show. And I was like, I'm listening to George Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I learned guitar after that because I wanted to learn some of the country, like the Chris Christopherson songs, the George and Tammy songs. um, And that that was sort of where my love affair with country started. And were you writing music back then? No, I I wrote music for the first time for this book, actually. I hadn't written music um, before this, but I've always made up, like I've, you know, just tinkering around on the piano or on the guitar, made up songs. But for this book, because it's about a country, a honky-tonk star, um, I started to write about her writing process, and then I was like, in order to do this properly, I need to actually sit down and write these songs and think about what she would be thinking about in terms of the bridge and the chorus and all those parts of, um, the songs along with, of course, the, the lyrics. 
what's wrong going to do here? So you wanted to walk the walk. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Right? I like it. Were you scared, though, of that writing process? Weirdly, no. Like, I get, I get so intimidated about... Uh, writing articles, if I if I let my you know uh, reptile brain take over, um, I certainly get nervous about novels. But this was just like there was zero pressure and zero commercial pressure. I was like, if this doesn't work out, then I've tried writing a song and it, that's fine. If it does work out, then I've got a little more information about what Lillian, my main character, goes through. Um, so it was actually so freeing because it just felt like fun. It felt like I could tinker and take all the time I wanted and add in little licks from other songs that I was listening to uh, and try to represent what she would have been writing in, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So did you visualize Lillian first before you started the whole process of writing the book? I knew, I knew sort of the touch points I wanted her to hit. So I knew that I wanted her to be born in Washington State, where I'm from. Um, I knew that I wanted her to leave home at age 10. Uh, that was actually a real thing that my own grandmother did, and we never knew why. My grandmother, like a lot of women, a lot of people from that era, just didn't talk about anything traumatic or upsetting. And so she would just say, I left, I started work, that's it. <laughs> um, and uh, so I knew I wanted Lillian to do the same thing in order to not, not really solve the mystery of why my grandmother left. I don't know why she did, but to look at what that's like to have to be on your own from age 10 on. Um, so in the book, Lillian moves into town to become a hired girl, which is sort of an underpaid servant, and starts supporting herself from age 10 and never returns to her family. Um, but I, I wasn't sure about her career, actually. I was thinking, I knew I wanted her to have a career that would put her into the world, that would have her grappling with what it means to be a woman and what was then primarily a man's working world. Um, I am getting out of breath. You're a fast, <laughs> you're a fast walker. <laughs> Needed to do cardio training before this. We could do a saunter. <laughs> you're a city walker. Yeah, I love walking. Um, I... And so I, I played around with, like, maybe she could be a nurse. Maybe she could work at Boeing, which was obviously based out there then. Um, and th those weren't really working. And then I came across, I always read the obituaries <laughs> in the New York Times. Sure. Because they're just, like, full of fascinating detail. And there was an obit of a country music producer out of Washington State. And, like, as I said, I'd been a country music fan. I'm from Washington, but I didn't think there was any link between the two. And in looking into this, I found there was this wonderful moment in the 1950s when Buck Owens, the founder, a founder of the California Country Sound, was up in Washington, when Loretta Lynn was out there, when Don Rich, who became Buck's electric guitarist, this incredible uh, guitarist, was out there. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's it. If I can get Lillian to um, Tacoma, Washington in the 1950s, then suddenly she's grappling with being an artist, she's grappling with her songs and her music and her stage presence and who she is and who she presents as and it, it becomes this really rich interesting story and like a side note that I didn't think about at the time but has been such a boon is that it let me really dive into country music history and learn so much more about it. And you also delve into the fact that Bakersfield, California was this other hot spot for 
country, right? Yes, yeah. Bakersfield is where Buck Owens is from. It's where Merle Haggard got his start. And a lot of other, uh, Gene Shepard sang out there. A lot of great country singers of the era were kind of in that Bakersfield scene. And Lillian, um, she meets up, she meets Buck, becomes friendly with him. He moves down to Bakersfield to continue his career, and she goes down and tries to make it on the honky-tonk circuit there. And it was that was really exciting to learn. I, I knew Buck Owens' songs, I knew Merle Haggard's, but I don't think I had a super clear picture of that California country sound, the sort of electric and rhythm um, and backslap. Uh, and I learned about other musicians like Rose Maddox, who I, I hadn't known her work before, and now I listen to her constantly. She's incredible, and she was, she was a real pioneer on the California country scene. So who are some of the women that inspire you with their grit and their resilience? Because obviously this is a story of tremendous grit. Yeah. Part of that was an homage to the woman of my grandmother's generation. And I think not just of my grandmother from Washington, but my grandmother here, who, who was born in New York, um, like how much they had to do just to keep going and how little they could talk about it. Um, like when I read some of the memoirs of country music singers and stars, when they often would go through something really traumatic, the woman would early in their life and just, and just treat it in a paragraph or something in the book and then not talk about it again. And I was curious about that whole mode of being for, for women from that generation and how, how little they could talk about some of what they went through. And, and I, I really admire um, a lot of the women out of, not just out of Nashville, but in the sort of Americana country scene today who sing so beautifully about what's going on in their lives in very real terms. I think of Amanda Shires, who you interviewed. I think of Alison Russell um, and how, how it gives them so much strength to sort of name what they're going through and talk about it and sing about it. Uh, and I, I wonder what it was like for all those women who couldn't do that or who were taught not to do that. Yeah, it is an interesting time right now with the uh, fact that there's so much... Uh, genre that's being sort of busted in terms of categorization yeah. and I know that's a central part of the book as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, Lillian is is from a honky-tonk background um, and by the time she finally gets to Nashville after, after going through Washington and Bakersfield, she's 40 years old and she, I did that on purpose because I think we have all, we all sort of know or can guess the story of the ingenue coming to Nashville and being told, you've got to wear this, you've got to dress this way, you've got to sing this. Lillian at 40 really knows the trade-off she's making, and she's willing to do it, and I thought that was a much more interesting story. She is an electric guitar player, um, she has a Fender Telecaster that she adores, and at her first recording session in Nashville, she has a producer, Coy Ray, who's really good for her in a lot of ways, but... Koi Ray says, like, put that thing away. I can't, I can't sell a 40-something divorcee, and I certainly can't sell a 40-something divorcee playing electric guitar. It's like 1963 in Nashville. And Lillian puts it away, and she, this moment where she's putting it back in its case, and all the other musicians can't even look because they know what it means to, to have to put away your instrument. Um, yeah, 
And, uh, but she at that point has worked so hard with so little success that she's willing to do it and she's willing to make the trade-offs. And she knows by the time she's on the, the book, obviously it's called The Farewell Tour, by the time she's on her farewell tour in 1980, um, she knows that this is going to be her last chance probably to perform. She's been diagnosed with career-ending vocal problems. But also, if she ever wants to sing sort of the truth about her life, this is going to be her chance to do that. And so she has to decide, am I willing to do that? Am I brave enough to do that? You mentioned Amanda and the character in the Farewell Tour, the fiddle player. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't help thinking a little bit about Amanda uh, and her spunk, but talk about uh, the uh, character. Yeah, Kaori, who's yes. um, the fiddle player on the Farewell, on the last tour. So she, that was a character that was so much fun to write because she started literally as a side person in Lillian's band. I didn't think of Kaori having much of a role besides playing fiddle on this, on this last um, tour. And then she just kept developing more and more and having more to say. So she shows up. Lillian, who's, you know, been brought up, Lillian's born in 24, so she's been brought up a certain way. Kaori shows up sort of brawless, you know, loose hair hanging down, <laughs> um, and Lillian immediately disapproves. But as she hears Kaori play, she realizes she's not only very good, but incredibly hardworking, which impresses Lillian. And the two of them start to talk to each other and eventually to become friends, and Lillian develops what at first I think is a grudging respect and then is an actual pure respect for um, Kaori and her work and her Kaori is also a songwriter um, and Kaori pushes Lillian in other ways where she's from a different generation she's from a generation that asks questions about the past that faces difficult things um, and, and Lillian comes to find out that Kaori's mother had been interned in the Japanese-American internment camps in the West and Kaori wants to stop by one of the camps where her mother was interned and take a look at it. And Lillian's immediate response, being from another generation, is like, why would you do that? That might be upsetting. <laughs> and Kaori says, that's, that's what we have to do. We have to face the past and we have to talk about it. And I think Lillian, in seeing Kaori face this really difficult um, part of her, her own past, gets the courage then to ultimately go back to Washington and grapple with Lillian's past. That's quite a storyline, my God. And yeah. the way the relationship unfolds is really fascinating because it's pretty edgy at times. It's pretty edgy. Kaori stands up for herself in a way that a lot of people don't with Lillian because she's Lillian's such a strong personality that kind of if you don't <laughs> if you don't push back, she'll bowl you over. Um, and I think Lillian also, you know, she's built up all of these walls around her. She's had to in order to survive. And as she connects with Kaori, as she connects with Charlie, who's her band leader, her longtime friend, her kind of musical equal, um, she lets down a little bit of that and realizes she doesn't have to be this tough, impenetrable person all the time. Talk about how being an investigative reporter helped you in this process, because you, you really go deep in terms of the music and, you know, the Bow Weevil Blues yeah. and Ma Rainey. And, but talk about how that really helped 
you writing this being so detailed and fact-checking? Yeah, I mean, one part is the fact-checking. That was my first job out of college, and that's a job where literally you're going through a magazine piece written by somebody else, underlining every fact and confirming it with a third-party source. So you learn research and you learn what's accurate and you learn what trustworthy sources are. Um, and with something like this, people rightly take music so seriously and take country music so seriously as they should. And I was like, I, can't, I do not want to get a single thing wrong. <laughs> like, I don't want to get a date wrong. I don't want to get a record label wrong. I don't want to get a technology wrong. Um, so I, I spent a ton of time in libraries. Uh, there's an excellent performing arts library here in New York. And they, the librarians there were so fantastic, where they brought out, like, acetate, so I could see how big an acetate was, so I could imagine, would Lillian be bringing an acetate, which was, were demo records back in the day, um, in her purse, or would she have to have, like, a special bag for it, or would she just be carrying it? Uh, they, I also wanted to kind of subtly but clearly show some of the influences on country music. So you mentioned Bo Weevil Blues. That's a song Lil hears when she's a kid at a Walla Walla farm where she lives, Walla Walla, Washington, which is quite rural. And I think there's been a split into sort of country music and other kinds of music since, um, since the Bristol sessions. And I wanted to kind of underline all the things that bring music and people together so that Lillian listening to this record recorded by Ma Rainey would completely understand what a bull weevil was, why it was problematic, why you'd have the blues about it because she, they've got bull weevils in their, in their flower too. Um, so I wanted to bring in some of the other influences on country like blues, like rock, like jazz and as Lillian is teaching herself about country music which is largely when she's in uh, Tacoma in, during World War II. She's working at a radio station uh, and she spends a ton of time in the library there just listening to different records. But she's also listening to Charlie Christian and she's listening to George Van Epps and she's listening to all of these things that are not classically country but certainly influenced the sound. And I couldn't help but think that it's, uh, it's crazy during the time that um, Lillian was growing up that there were bank failures, and the irony <laughs> struck me yeah. thinking about now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that she grows up on a Depression-era farm that has a mortgage, and her, her dad is sort of torn between logging, which is his real love, and he inherited this farm that he's supposed to run but has little interest in running. Um, and so Lillian, like at one point, she sees the actual mortgage paper, and she realizes there, there's no way they can make it. Like, she doesn't know that much about her family's finances, but she knows they're not going to make the mortgage. And, and the banks are failing. People in town are selling all of their possessions for nothing. Uh, so the, the whole era of the book was so fascinating because you go from the Depression to World War II to JFK's assassination, which, which plays a role in the book. And it's just, just this super rich... Um, these super rich decades of history. Did you do some research at the Country Music Hall of Fame? I did um, a little bit of, the, it was during COVID most of it, so I couldn't go. 
um, but they have they have great online resources. Um, Bakersfield, the Cal State Library there has incredible resources about the Bakersfield sound with a bunch of oral interviews of different producers, musicians. Um, so those were both fabulous resources. And then I was able to go to Walla Walla and Tacoma in person and do, do research on those towns and uh, get a sense of what they were like in Lil's era. Another fabulous Nashville museum that's often unheralded, and I think it sort of speaks to the uh, richness, the way you pursue the genres in the book, is the African-American Music Hall of Fame. I don't know mm, if you've ever checked I that out. No. It's pretty remarkable, and, and I think people sort of forget about where where the roots played played a role. Yes, yes. When you uh, first went to Nashville, uh, when was that? Uh, the first time I went was for a wedding, so it was... Oh, you were one of those people. I was one of those people. It was maybe <laughs> 2008 or something. And, but you talk about the Ryman, too. Did you tour the Ryman when you were there? Yeah, so the, all, all of Tootsie's, all of those spots were so incredible. And I should mention, I just got to go back to Nashville for an event there. Um, the for the country, book? For the book. Oh, awesome. And the Country Music Hall of Fame happened to have this Western exhibit. So I walk in, and there's Rose Maddox's costume. There's Graham Parsons from the cover, or from... Uh, which, the Burrito Brothers, yeah. Burrito Brothers, but I think Gilded Palace of Sin, that yeah, white, sure. <laughs> that white nudie suit. So it was just unbelievable to walk in and see it, like Grand Parsons' guitar. All of these things were so cool. Yeah, we had Paul Kingsbury, who's the sort of the curator there, the historian of the oh, Country wow. Music Hall of Fame. So I did see that exhibit, and and I think uh, it was really beautifully done. It really, and it's so neat to hear that music overhead because you don't hear it in public really right you don't hear like Graham Parsons playing at a grocery store <laughs> um, and suddenly you're hearing Graham Parsons and Linda Ronstadt and Emmylou Harris and it's so incredible to walk through and, and just hear that at once just recently discovered Graham Parsons went to Harvard yeah, that's right. Didn't you drop out? Yeah, oh yeah. Elizabeth Holmes style? I sure did. He <laughs> sure did. All, all the interesting ones drop out. Yeah. So as you, uh, as you think about the state of uh, music and females and country music, and you think about Lillian, what would she say about it today? That's a great question. I think she would be frustrated by the top 50, which is still, I think, only 10, 12% women. Um, but I think she would also look outside the top 50 and look at all of these artists, Margot Price, Rhiannon Giddens, uh, look at what they're doing and how, how kind of proudly and strongly they're telling their stories and the stories of other women and be like, whoa, that's something amazing. That's fantastic. Like, they're fighting the good fight and they're winning, even if it's not may not be getting onto Billboard <laughs> Top 50, but um, it's, it's just beautiful, moving music. So you think she would appreciate the Margot Prices of the world? Totally, totally. She'd want to tour with her? She would. <laughs> oh, no. I would be front row for that one, for right? sure. So what are you working on next? Um, I'm starting my next book. Uh, so I'm just doing research for it now. You just can't rest, can you? I can't, I can't rest. Um, I've got a couple magazine articles in the works that I've, I'm sort of starting reporting on. 
Um, and that's that's uh, that's most of it. What do you can you tell us what you're thinking about, even in the germ? You know, I keep throwing out ideas. So <laughs> if this one sticks, I'll definitely tell you. But I've I've already thrown out three ideas. It's funny to... I, I write books over a long period of time. I, I admire people who can write them in six months or a year, but that's not me. And so I have to really want to spend time with the characters. And I had been working on this book about, um, like, six people out on Long Island. And about a month ago, I was like, I, I don't like these people. Like, I don't want to spend time with them. And I was like, I didn't even want to spend another day with them. Like, I got to... And so I threw that one out and started fresh. You you have to you have to love and be interested in your characters. And it like Lillian and Charlie are often still with me, like popping up, telling me what they think about this or about that. Um, and I I'm so glad to have them still with me that that I want to really love the characters as much for the next novel. And the music. Uh composition part. We touched on it earlier. Yeah. So tell me about some of the songs and how they came into your head and you channeled them through Lillian. Yeah, so I think the first song I wrote was Waterlill, which is meant to be her first number one hit. Um, her producer says, like, we need, you need basically a nickname. Can you, like, tell me about your past? She starts telling him. And he says, why don't we, like, we're going to cut some years off your life anyway. Uh, not, not off of her life, but off of her age anyway. Um, and she mentions there's this Walla Walla flood when she was a kid. And, and he's like, okay, Waterloo, like, we can, we can work with that. That'll work. Uh, and so at first I didn't have any lyrics, any music. It was just this idea that she had a song, Waterloo. But then... Like, Lillian was like, no, 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 I want to write the song. I want to figure this out. So I, I write it first on piano, which is mo I'm more fluid on piano, and then translate it to guitar to make sure it makes sense, that the chord transitions and such would make sense in guitar. Um, there's another one called Woman's Work, which she writes. Uh, it's the first song she ever writes. And uh, she's, this is with her band in World War II era Tacoma. They're playing, they're sitting around playing Gene Autry <coughs> back in the saddle again, and it's not working. The, it's these five women who, like, they can't get any feeling out of it. And finally, they realize, like, oh, we never really got to go in the saddle. Like, if we were on a horse, it was for working, um, for, like, plowing the fields or bringing water to and from the fields. Like, we never just got to go out and ride free. And so Lillian starts thinking about this, and she writes the song Woman's Work from the phrase, A Woman's Work is Never Done. But it starts with this little, like, schoolyard chant of these that little girls might sing that's like, wash it, dry it, cook it, bake it. Uh, and her, her thinking is, like, even in schoolyards, boys are throwing balls and getting messy and getting muddy, and girls are playing these, like, almost domestic games. And so she plays off of that for this Woman's Work song. Who are some of the writers you admire? Oh, God. Where do we start, right? I know, where do we start? <laughs> um, John Prine, certainly. Uh, oh, there's so many. Um, I, I love the sort of storytelling quality. The, the asides in the John Prine... I was just listening, of course, to Gordon Lightfoot. Um, yes. And so I've been listening nonstop to him. But just... 
it, it's it's a song that would work without these like two word asides but then he just throws in something and you're just like like looking at the rain for instance it's looking at the wall wishing you'd call and tell me you're okay and then he pauses and then he says that's all and that <laughs> that little twist is just so good uh so a lot of the singer songwriters um Amy Lou Harris, uh, Dolly Parton certainly is just a stunner on every every <laughs> um, facet. Uh, there are just so many so many songs from that era, especially that just make you stop and. And how about novelists that you admire? Mm. Where do we start there, right? Where do we start there? My first novel was inspired by Edith Wharton, so I think of the classic. Um, the classic or at least gilded age novelists um she she had such an eye for detail and for social status that i really admired wallace stegner i think writes so beautifully about the west in a way that i was really inspired by for this book as i tried to encapsulate he writes about a different part of the west he writes about california um and saskatchewan but the sort of dry arid west and i was trying to write about that in a similar way with the Northwest, which is much more bountiful and sort of forgiving as a landscape. Uh, but I think his, like his portraits of marriages are just so, they just cut you to, to your heart. You kind of like, feel like I can't get up for three days after reading a <laughs> Stegner book because um, they're so fabulous. Uh, I read, you know, I read a lot of classic Western literature as I as I researched this book and thought about what I wanted to touch on. So, uh, Grapes of Wrath, certainly. And one thing that I wanted to shift about that was even in books that I really admire, like Grapes of Wrath, um, the women are not centric and they're not really allowed to leave their homes. Like they're... Uh, they're sort of majoed as you see her in camp or on the on the truck, but other than that, you don't really see her out in the world doing much. And I wanted to take that sort of strong Western woman and put her out in the world and see what happened, which is Lillian, and she argues with everybody. <laughs> basically what happens. Talk about how you're engaging with folks in the uh, reading community, uh, both with sort of you know, book discussion groups, but also how, you know, sharing playlists. So how are you connecting with fans and how can folks find that? Yeah. So stephaniecliffer.net is my website. Um, there you can sign up for a Zoom book club discussion. And I've done a few of those and it's really great. I, I, it's, I've done bookstore visits and uh, other sort of more formal author events, which are also great. But at the Zoom events, everybody's, everybody's read the book or are pretending they have. <laughs> um, so you just get really interesting questions about things I'd never thought about, like why did you make this choice, or why do you have Charlie do this, or you know, why not have Lillian stay in Washington? Just like plot choices, but people talking about it in a way where the characters are almost as, as real to them maybe as, as they are to me. And so it's, so it's so much fun to talk to readers about why you do what you do and half the time you don't as a writer you don't they're not super conscious choices so you get these questions that really make you reflect on why like why did i do that was that the right choice um there's a spotify playlist 
that takes you through. It's mostly uh, women, but also some of the influences on Lillian in the book. Um, and that's also linked on my website. Um, and then I just love hearing from readers. So my contact information's on the website. People have been emailing me with suggestions on who to listen to. Uh, and it's it's been a it's so fun having a book in the world and being able to finally talk about <laughs> talk about it with people. The book is mesmerizing. It's cinematic. It's uh, really a triumph. And uh, we put some steps on today too. We did. Thanks, Got Stephanie. It. Thank you. Appreciate you taking a walk in person. I loved it. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.